Open your Bible, if you will, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 1. I thought he said Matthew. Okay, so we're going to get to Matthew uh, very quickly. Uh, Next week, our Emmanuel Network Summit happens, and we always have one of our partners that we've sent out preach for us on that Sunday. And so uh, Ramney Perez, our church uh, planter in the Bronx, will be preaching for us next Sunday, which I'm looking forward to. And I hope you'll you'll look forward to it. And I had a kind of a one-off Sunday in between. Uh, And so I wanted to, uh, well, I'll explain what I want to do in a minute. But I'm going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. If you are new to Emmanuel or uh, have been around Emmanuel a long time, I would really love to invite you this Friday evening uh, to the Emmanuel Network Summit uh, celebration service. This is a time where we regather uh, many of the 40-plus like-minded brothers and sisters who are part of the Emmanuel Network. That's simply church planters, church revitalizers, church workers, former members of here who've been sent out to various places like Hawaii, New Orleans, Kuala Lumpur. We get to bring a lot of them back and to get to be with them on that Friday night. I would love for you to be there and just to hear an update on really what your money and your prayers are producing all over the globe. Also, next Sunday morning, our prayer time, which normally meets in multiple different classrooms, will all be in here. We'll all be in here Sunday morning for the prayer time. We'd love to have you here. We'll be intermixing testimonies from the different folks who've gone out, the Emmanuel Network, and praying for them over that time. So it'll be a great time. If you're like, I hear Emmanuel Network, I've never, I don't know what that means. We'll explain it during that time. If you're like, I know the Emmanuel Network, how are those guys doing? Some of them will share uh, during that time and we'll pray. So we'd love to have you here uh, Sunday um, morning on the prayer time and then Friday afternoon. And then one more announcement, and then this is going to actually be a sermon, not just announcements. Patty Withers and the women's ministry have just served us extremely well by putting together a list of studies book studies, Bible studies that are happening uh, throughout our city over the course of the next few weeks and months. So Risen Motherhood, Suffering is Never Nothing, the book of Titus, the book of James, the deeper book study. You can find those all in your church app. And if you're like, where's the church app? Well, you can go to the website and you'll find an easy to find link to the church app and somehow you can get there. But ladies, there's just a ton of resources available for you over the coming months if you're looking for fellowship and growth in God's Word. We would love to have you at those times. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 is a passage that reminds us of the character that's required to cultivate church unity. If you're married or you've got roommates, it's also the character required to keep your marriage together, keep your friendships intact. It's a reminder that unity is really a byproduct of the grace of Christ that works in our lives and how He forms character in our lives that can actually promote unity. And so I'll explain why I'm preaching on this passage in a minute, but for now, let me just read you Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, 
with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Let's pray. Father, I want to come before You and ask You that just like Paul prayed that his service to the saints would be acceptable in Jerusalem, that You, Lord God, would come in my weakness and our weakness and make my service in the Word acceptable and helpful to the saints I love at Emmanuel. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I made a promise uh, several months ago. Some of you weren't even here when I made it, but I made a promise several months ago that I would uh, basically address surviving and thriving as a long-term member at Emmanuel Baptist Church. And I want to keep that promise uh, this morning. Uh, When I made the promise months ago, I asked the congregation to send me ideas and emails about how to survive and thrive as a long-term member. And many of you wrote those emails, and I'm very thankful they've really shaped uh, my thinking on uh, really what it takes to really be a a church member and to survive and thrive as a member of the body of Christ for a long period of time. I appreciate those. I also know that many of you have spoken to myself and elders privately. It tends, I'll tell you this, that the emails tend to be all positive. It's awesome being a member at Emmanuel long term. The private conversations, not so much. And uh, so both of those have been taken into account in thinking about this. I also want to thank Lisa Fields, a long-term member of Emmanuel, who graciously asked me a month or two ago, hey, when is that talk coming? Uh, The answer is this morning. Uh, The talk is coming right now. Now, I have to say that the way I'm planning to address this topic. And actually, let me just back up. That's a little early for a rabbit trail, but here we go. You may be new to Emmanuel, and the thought of being a long-term member and needing biblical help and teaching and being a long-term member may be the furthest thing from your mind. And so, if that's the case, what I would say is you want to put this in your tool belt for a long Christian life where you're not simply just popping in one church, uh, one church from the next for the rest of your life, but you really actually have the Christian character so that you can weather many, many storms in one body. And if you've been here a long time, I don't need to persuade you that this is an important message for us. So I'll just uh, continue. I want to plan to address this topic. I've been planning to address this topic, but I've been, I'm going to address it in a way that's very different from what I was expecting to do. And it might be very different than what you were expecting uh, me to do. So here here are the few of the differences. First, uh, where I'm giving this talk is different. I I imagine I would probably share these things uh, in a a members meeting or maybe in a lunch for long-term Louisvillians. I never imagined addressing this issue on a Sunday morning. And one of the reasons for that is that we're going to talk to some degree about transience or what it takes to deal with transience. 
And a lot of people, the reason for that is because a lot of people come and go from a manual. Not because they're all disgruntled, that does happen, but the bulk of our transients comes from the fact that we're in a transient culture, we have a transient student population, and we try to send out people each year to plant churches across North America and the globe. So how do you talk about that without making the people who are only here for a few years not feel guilty or like second-class citizens? That's a bit tricky. And I think I know how to do it, so that's why I'm doing it in this context. I think these are important things for all of us to hear. Second, another way uh, this talk is kind of different than I expected is that I thought it would be more of like a Proverbs talk, kind of a wisdom talk, sort of a tips and tricks for surviving long-term. I thought I would say something like this. If you're a long-term member, it may be wise to join a GCG or a small group with other long-term members. You should still get to know visitors and new members, but it might be wise to be in a GCG where, Lord willing, you might develop 10, 20, 30-year-long relationships. If God burdens you to be in a GCG with more transient folks, that's great. But there's wisdom in settling with those who are settled. Um, that'd be a wise move. I thought that's where this was going. I still think that's wise. Many of you should probably do that. But that's not where I feel led to go this morning. Third, I thought this message might be a bit of a vision sermon. You know, where are we going in the future? And I thought I would spend a lot of time telling you the ways our elders are trying to help long-term members get involved and lead. And I, I can't tell you how this is essentially coming up every time our elders meet. We're just regularly thinking about how to care for really the long-term stability of Emmanuel. And so I thought maybe I would share with you a ways in which we're seeing long-term members equipped as GCG leaders, future pastors, deacons, active leaders and participants in men's ministry and women's ministry, youth ministry, children's ministry, room hosts, for our prayer rooms and Sunday school teachers. As we complete our Neighborhood 360, which is a survey of this neighborhood, we're going to be doing an upcoming uh, survey of really the talents and gifts that are in this room and thinking about where do we use those to serve our city and our neighborhood. So we're constantly thinking about these things, and that would be an important topic to cover and not the one I'll cover uh, this morning. Where am I going to focus this morning? I'm going to focus on character. I'm going to focus on the maturity we need for the unity we desire. At the end of the day, the number one reason people do not thrive in the local church is that they do not have the maturity we all need to stay united with other Christians in a local church. Now, as soon as I say that, it might sound like I'm saying everyone who's ever left at Emmanuel in the past was immature. That is not the point of this message. This isn't the beat up the people who leave message in the least. That is not what I'm saying. There can be many good reasons to leave a local church. Location can play a role. Changed convictions can play a role. Our calling can play a role. The point of this sermon is not to say that every time someone does not stay at one local church, it proves how immature they are. What am I not saying? Okay, then I'll move on. Not every transfer of church membership is a failure of character. But some are. Some are. 
Sometimes the reason we cannot stay at a local church is because of our immaturity and because of the immaturities we encountered in the church. The immaturities of those who can't handle anymore, the immaturities of those who stay, those immaturities can play a huge role in why people don't survive and thrive at a local church. And I want to call each and every one of us to the individual maturity that sustains Christian unity. Now, one other reason I want to focus on character is because I want to, ref- I want to, I want to uh, reframe this discussion if I can. This is a discussion that kind of swirls around Emmanuel. And if I can reframe it, I would like to this morning. I want to reframe the discussion on transients and long-term Louisvillians in a most biblical direction. I say most biblical because I don't think the way we've talked about these things in the past is unbiblical. We've often talked about structures. How can we change the way we work so that we're more conducive to those who are here long-term? And that's not an unbiblical discussion. That's a good discussion. The Bible cares about structures. The Bible gives some people a gift of administration. Uh, In Acts chapter 6, when the structures are bad, the widows don't get fed. When the structures get changed, the widows get fed. So structures are not unspiritual at all. And at the same time, I wanted like to shift the conversation away from structures. Not, not that we can't ever talk about structures again. Only that it's not the main thing necessary to stay, to survive and thrive in a local church for a long period of time. Structures aren't the main thing. Uh, at the end of my preparation, this surprised me, not at the beginning of my preparation, but the, at the end of it, I actually read a John Stott quote that surprised me. He's talking about walking worthy of Christ, talking about walking in unity with the local church. And he says, too many, too many people start with structures. And he says, and structures of some kind are indispensable, but the apostle starts with moral qualities. Certainly in the quest for Christian unity, if we have to choose, we must say that the moral is more important than the structural. And that's what our passage is dealing with this morning. It's dealing with the maturity that creates unity. Let me, let me show you what I'm talking about. So Ephesians, we've been in Ephesians a little bit lately. I preached on Ephesians. Actually, I preached on the passage just before this uh, a few weeks ago when I preached on praying that we would be spiritually empowered and praying that we would know the fullness of Christ. Uh, when I preached on bowing our knees to God the Father, that was all the passage just before this one in Ephesians. And what Paul's been dealing with in Ephesians is he's been dealing with how God has lifted up the cross of Christ to make one united people. How he's lifted up Jesus to make a people of Jews and Gentiles. A diverse people have come together through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you read through the book of Ephesians, what you'll find is Paul saying that Jesus preached to those who were far off and to those who were near. You'll see uh, Jesus saying that he he gathered one new man from those who were far off and those who were near. He he made this one people. We saw this in uh, Ephesians chapter 3 when Paul says, I bow my knee before the Father through whom all the families of the earth are named. So this this theme of God creating a united people has been um, echoing throughout the book of Ephesians. It's been really dominating our thinking. It's been dominating Paul's thinking. 
And what Paul is going to do in the second half of Ephesians, so Ephesians 1-3 through is giving us all the ways that Jesus has accomplished this unity between people who wouldn't have anything in common. And then chapter 4, 5, and 6 lead to how you live it out. How you live in this kind of unity. How you don't lie to one another, Ephesians chapter 4. Because you're members of one another. How husbands and wives don't grow apart but grow together. Submitting to Christ and loving as Christ. How parents and children live this out. The whole rest of Ephesians is, is working out how this unity is to unfold in our daily lives. And where does Paul start? Like if you're just gonna, hey, you're gonna, you're gonna teach the whole people of God how to live a life united with God and united with one another. Where do you start? And Paul says character. It's all character. It's all character. And that's why you see these character qualities being laid out. Notice he says, I therefore a prisoner of the Lord, verse 1, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. What's a, what's a manner worthy of the calling? What, what could be worthy of God? What are we looking for when we try to think of living worthy of God? And you just keep reading and it's pretty obvious it's unity. It's pretty obvious it's unity. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And just in case the preacher wasn't being clear, he then repeats the word one seven times. Sort of like one of those things like, there's just no excuse for missing this point. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your one call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. You don't need to sit in a seminary classroom to be able to figure it out. Now what's the point here? Paul's saying that to walk worthy of God is to walk in unity. And the way that unity is expressed is primarily in local churches where we run up against real people we'd be tempted to pull back from, disunite from. And so Paul's telling us, here's how you do it. Here's how you walk in that unity. And what he gives us is, well, what I'm going to lay out as really four things. Andy McClurg used to get on me for using things, but I haven't come up with anything better. So here's four things that help us walk in unity. One is understanding your calling. Two is knowing your coach. Three is cultivating character. And four is making a commitment. The first is understanding your calling. Notice what it says there. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called. Now, one of the great privileges of being in Emmanuel Baptist Church at this season is I know that every time I'm preaching, I'm preaching to non-Christians and I'm preaching to new Christians. And one of the glories of that verse I just read, one of the most beautiful things about that verse I just read is that shows us how Christian lifestyle, Christian ethics, how you live as a Christian is different than every other philosophical or religious tradition on earth. You might read that verse and think, oh, the Christian life works like everything else I've ever heard. What are you supposed to do? Be good enough. Walk worthy. Be worthy, and then you'll be in, right? Islam teaches that if you follow 
the five pillars of Islam, you'll do more good than bad, you'll get in good with Allah on the last day. Buddhism teaches that if you follow the eightfold path, you will arrive at nirvana. Uh, certain branches of Hinduism promise that if you gain enough karma by your good deeds, you get a better reincarnation. If you walk worthy, you get in. If you do the good stuff, you get the good stuff. It's first you, then the prize. But notice what Paul said here. He didn't say anything about walking worthy so you would be called. Put your finger on the Bible and look at that. He didn't say anything about walking worthy so you would be called. He said, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And the idea of calling in the Bible is not going, is not God saying, oh, please, I'd really like you to follow me. I just need a few good men and you could be one of mine. I just need an army. Please, 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 please. The desperate God. No. Calling in the Bible is not just God asking you to come. Calling in the Bible is when God speaks to your heart and so that the, the automatic response, the response you can't resist is that you do come. It's the calling that we see in the life of Lazarus. As I've told you a thousand times before, Jesus walks up to the tomb and he doesn't say to Jesus, to Lazarus, okay, Lazarus, I've got a decision I want you to make. He says, Lazarus, come forth. Boom, eyes are open. Me? Yeah, you, come out of there. Okay, I'm alive now, so I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna come forward. This is what happens when a Christian is saved. A Christian is saved not when they stay the same and start making better decisions, but when they're dead and they're called into life. So when you get called into life, then what God says to you is, you've been called. You are a child. You are redeemed. You are justified. You are headed to heaven. You will be glorified. All of human history is working together for your good. It's all done, sealed, signed, delivered. All of it. Now, walk worthy. And the walking worthy is not a desperate, panicked, depressed attempt to get into God's good graces. It's a recognition that you are in God's good graces, and so you are now to walk like it. A friend of mine used to tell a story about some upper-level biology students, and they walked into this upper-level course, so there's only like 10 or 12 people in the course, and you know, by this time, by the time you get to those upper level courses, the only people in them want to be there. They actually don't just need this course, they like this course. And the professor said, okay, everybody in the class has got an A+. Now just enjoy the material. There's a great sense in which the Christian life works like that. You've been justified. You've been given the righteousness of Christ. Now enjoy following him. Enjoy putting on that righteousness in your practical, everyday life. That's so necessary for church unity because a bunch of people trying to work their way to heaven and be good enough will wind up being just like every other dog-eat-dog, rat-pile group you ever met. Just everybody trying to scrounge their way to the top. No, I'm more righteous than you're righteous. I'm more righteous than you. Please keep coming to the church so I can prove there's someone I'm more righteous than. Versus this different kind of congregation where everybody's been accepted. 
And now we're walking worthy. We're not competing with each other. We're helping one another along. So you need to understand your calling. The second thing you need to do in pursuing unity and the character necessary for unity is to know your coach. So the Apostle Paul is our coach in unity here. And listen to what he tells us about himself. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, ask you, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now think about that. The guy calling them to unity isn't enjoying any of it. The guy calling them to unity is certainly not enjoying the fullness of it. He's a prisoner. He can't make all the church events. He's not able to fully engage in every part of the body's life. He's actually been sidelined for much of the glory that goes on when the church gathers. Because when this letter is written, he's under house arrest in Rome, waiting for his appearance before Caesar. And what he, why does he mention this? Why does he drop this? I mean, this is a weird flex. Why, why, why are you doing this, Paul? Paul, a prisoner. Why are you doing this? Well, I think there's two functions this does. One, when you drop that you're a prisoner, you're, you're saying, I'm in. I'm committed. I'm committed to this stuff even if it lands me in jail. I'm committed to what I'm teaching you even if I don't get to enjoy it. It's right because it's right. Not because it's personally benefiting me. You seen anything that could help us? You see, oftentimes people are committed to church unity as long as they're enjoying church unity. But as soon as they've had a few too many kids and they can't go to all the things, or their friend group dissolves and they wind up feeling a season of loneliness, or someone they love leaves or has to move away, then all of a sudden their commitment to the character that builds church community wanes. And what Paul's imprisonment does is it reminds us these things are good even if you don't get to taste them. Sometimes the cook doesn't get to drink the broth. Sometimes the cook doesn't get to taste the cake. I'll be honest with you. The life Christy and I have been called to live has got to call people to unity a lot more than we've been able to enjoy it at different times. When I, when I came here, you know, you think, I want a place for my kids. There was one other kid. I had one kid. There was one other kid in the nursery. That kid left. Then I watched my daughter cry multiple times as her best friends left over the years. My younger kids, lots of kids their age before that, there was not. But those things didn't become right because my family was really getting the gravy. Those things were right because they glorified God. And, and there's really a sense in which there may be seasons where you're in the thick of it, where you're like, I am tasting an appetizer of heaven. This GCG meeting, this, this, I could go from here to heaven, just like that. It would be so glorious. Or this time over coffee, I mean, we are fellowshipping. I mean, it's getting close to the persons of the Trinity here. <laughs> and then there's other times, really, do I know anybody's name? 
Are there yet 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal? There's times where we feel utterly alone and utterly despised. There's times where we may wind up like Paul, literally in prison. What will you want for Emmanuel Baptist Church at that time? I hope you'll want unity. I hope we'll have the maturity to call ourselves and others to what is good even when we don't get it. None of us would be here unless other people had sacrificed what is good so we could have it. Anybody who's ever been in an unreached people group, how do they get saved? Someone has to leave all the good stuff in the church to go to where it isn't and suffer where it isn't so that generations along it can be produced. Emmanuel, we need to have the maturity that says, I will work for what is good even if I don't get to taste a drop of the food. I remember uh, Christy and I uh, were asked to babysit some kids years ago. We were, we were a young married couple, no kids of our own, and some friends of ours had never had a honeymoon, and so they asked us if they would take our kids for a weekend. Well, they got to go, for them, this was a honeymoon, they were going to go to the Ligonier Bible Conference. These were some holy friends. And... Uh, and uh, we took care of their kids, and I'd never, we'd never taken care of three kids in our lives. And uh, one day, we were serving hot dogs to all the kids, and I realized that there, were, there was five of us, and there was five hot dogs, and there was only four buns. I, I hate hot dogs with bread. I do not ever like to eat a hot dog with bread. I want a bun with every hot dog I ever eat. And it began to dawn on me, I'm the guy who's supposed to take the bread. And I did it to the glory of God. <laughs> and I want to encourage you not to lose heart if it's your turn to take the bread. To not get to enjoy the thing that we all want. But to keep commending it and to recognize that if you go, maybe you go a meal without eating it. But the long-term result is that others get to get it. And in due time, you as well will get your own seasons of blessing. So we want to think about our calling. We want to think about our coach. We want to think about developing character. Developing character. Coach Paul gives us four character qualities that are essential for unity. Humility. Gentleness. Patience. Forbearance. I don't even need to preach that for, without, for you to be able to understand that, right? I mean, you could just tell that a community with a bunch of humble, gentle, patient, forbearing people is going be, to last longer, thrive more, work better than a community full of proud, harsh, impatient, I don't put up with that garbage group of people, Right? Which church lasts longer? Put them in a Petri dish. Which one lives? The one of unity is the one of humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance. Humility. John Stott writes what we all know. Pride lurks behind, behind all discord. 
while the greatest single secret of concord is humility. If everybody thinks they always know best, you're going to have a brawl or a cat fight or a room so silent and divided you can cut the tension with a knife. Humility, on the other hand, creates teachable people, a confrontable people, reasonable people. We all know that what we often don't, we all know how things go if we're not humble. So let me ask you a question. Are you humble? Put that question in your mind. Are you humble? And we all kind of know that it's going bad if we go, I'm very proud of my humility, actually. I've been cultivating it for some time, and it's looking good. It's looking good. Okay, that's funny, but how do you know? How do you know if you're humble? Well, someone might say, I know I'm humble because I'm obedient. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient. I try to obey God's word. I don't follow my ways, follow his ways. That's humble. There is a relationship between humility and obedience, but there's something important to say about that. Some of the proudest people you will ever meet are scrupulously obedient. Right? Apostle Paul, when he's building up his Pharisee resume, right? In regards to the law, blameless. Oh, what a pleasant person. Or the Pharisee in Luke 18, I thank God that I'm not like other men. I pray, I fast. You can be scrupulously obedient and be proud as the devil. So how do you know if you're humble? And I'll just say this. Some of your leaders in your home or in your spheres of influence, and everyone knows you're all about obedience, but no one knows you as humble. So how do you know if you're humble? Well, the other way would be some people would say, well, I know I'm humble because I'm so weak. I mean, I'm, I'm full of anxiety. I'm depressed. I have panic attacks. I can barely even breathe through difficult circumstances. So surely I'm not someone who thinks I'm God's gift to the planet. I'm not, I'm not that special. Look how weak I am. Look how anxious I am. Look how depressed I am. Look how often I lose all control when that anxiety becomes a panic attack. Surely I must be humble. Well, as much as I would want to show empathy to that weakness, you need to understand that in the Bible, anxiety is very often linked with pride. Anxiety is not a mark of humility. Being overwhelmed with anxiety to the point of a panic attack is not a mark of humility. It's actually a mark of being crushed when you can't live up to your own proud expectations of yourself and others. Weakness is not necessarily a mark of humility at all. Well, let me show you how humility works. Look at, look at 1 Peter chapter 5. This is so helpful, I think. 
First Peter chapter 5. And if you are someone who struggles with anxiety, and by that I mean if you're a human here this morning, <laughs> there's a very important lesson here. First Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Apostle Peter says, Humble yourselves. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him. Now, I'm not going to do a Greek grammar lesson this morning, but I just need to understand, these aren't two separate commands. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, casting your anxieties on Him. The one is a participle that, that tells us how you live out the main verb. There, that's all the grammar. How do I humble myself under the mighty hand of God? Casting. I humble myself by casting. So I, I, I confront circumstances that feel overwhelming to me, and I take charge. Silence the opposition. Manipulate the circumstances. Retreat into a closet. I am a rock. I am an island. No, I cast. That's overwhelming casting. I'm confronted with my own sin. Come on, guns blazing. You, you too, you do it too. Me, you. No, casting. So, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God is not some vague, unimaginable reality. Humble yourself, casting. Anxiety says, deal with it. I'm going to deal with it. It's all going to be in me. I'm going to figure out the answer. I'm going to figure out how to do it. I'm going to figure out how to make it happen. And then all of a sudden I'm done in a panic attack and I'm hyperventilating and I don't even know what's happening in the world anymore. But I must be humble, right? No, 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 no. You've been overcome by pride. You've been overcome by pride. And there's a better way. There's a way of humbling yourself. Casting. Casting all those cares. Casting them on the Lord. Trusting that he's big enough. Trusting that his righteousness is enough to cover your sin. Trusting that his sovereignty is enough to deal with your circumstances. Trusting that his spirit is strong enough to strengthen you in this circumstance. That's humble. That's humble. That's humble. And those people don't fight a ton in the body. Right? What does the Bible say? The Bible says, do not fret. It only leads to evil. That's interesting. We all, I thought fretting was neutral. I thought anxiety was just a condition, a disease, a, something I have, not something I do. No, it's something you do. And if you give yourself to fretting, it only leads to evil. When are you going to steal? When you're worried about money? When are you going to lie? When you're worried about looking like an idiot? When are you going to yell? When you're worried you're not going to be able to have God control this thing? Right? Do not fret. It only leads to evil. The character that creates unity is humble. It's humble. How am I going to deal with people leaving? Lord, help me. Provide a new friend. Provide a prayerful attitude. Provide me with your personal strengthening that Paul had when he was in prison. Help me out. 
Gentleness. Gentleness. One of the great passions God has put in my soul is a passion for truth. And I know many of you are here because you share that passion. Sadly, those who are characterized by a passion for truth are often not characterized by gentleness. You've got to be strong if you're going to be committed to the truth, right? You've got to buckle up. Truth has so many enemies and you have to develop the determination of a soldier. Well, that's true. But you also have to learn how to swing a velvet hammer. Not a sledgehammer. The Bible, which is so concerned with truth, is equally concerned with gentleness. The elder's words must be gentle. 1 Timothy 3.3 A father's words should be gentle lest he exasperate his children. Ephesians 6.4 A husband should be gentle lest he be accused of not dwelling with his wife in an understanding way. A Christian correcting another in sin should be gentle. Galatians 6.1 A boss should not be harsh and threatening, but should be characterized by gentleness. Ephesians 6.9 there are a lot of soft, effeminate men in the world. And it could lead those of us who want to reject that kind of effeminacy to associate harshness and brashness and unreasonableness and firmness, unreasonable firmness, with masculinity. But the link is not biblical. The great men of the Bible have been full of power and authority, and they've been men under control. They've been men of conviction, but conviction when the Bible calls us to be gentle finds that command just as important as the command to be steadfast. I remember in the early days of my ministry to Manuel, my two co-pastors were, were Jeff King and Tommy Hullett. So it was Ryan Fullerton and Captain Compassion and Master Compassion, just compassion on both sides. And we were dealing with a difficult church discipline case, and I was like, brothers, it's time to act. The Bible's clear what we're supposed to do in this circumstance. And they were insistent that we ought to take a little more time and uh, deal with this person with compassion. And I was like, this word on uh, discipline is in the Bible. And I can't remember if it was Jeff or Tommy who said it. It could have been either of them. They both would have said it, I'm sure. They were like, yeah, compassion's in the Bible too, Ryan. That's a word for all of us. Gentleness is in the Bible too. If you're committed to truth, but not that part of the truth, it's not a commitment to the truth. We'll take the last two as a pair. Patience. Bearing with one another in love. These are good. These are good commands. Some things are implied by certain commands, right? Patience and bearing with one another in love. What's implied there? Other people grow slow. And other people have a lot you have to bear with. Right? And then uh, on the other hand, that command is for them regarding you. You have not come along as quickly as we had hoped. 
Each of you have disappointed in your own special way. We're all a lot to deal with. Every one of us. And the other people we deal with are growing slowly, and along the way they've got idiosyncrasies and personality issues and sins that are to be born with. Now the encouraging part is, why do we have to do this? Because this is what it is to be like Jesus. If you're like, God just feels done with me. No. He is patient and forbearing with his children. He's not saying, hey, I'm mad up here. Y'all better be patient to each other down there. No, but he has this as a father is mindful of our weakness. So So as a father is mindful that we are dust, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. How do we learn to be patient? Uh, one of the primary ways we can be a suffering, we can, we can learn patience is through suffering. James Montgomery Boyce, this is the guy from Philadelphia, not the one who started the Bible college here. James Montgomery Boyce tells a story. He says of a rather pious individual who once came to a preacher and asked him to pray for him that he might have patience. I do so lack patience, the man said, trying to be as humble as he could as he said it. I wish you would pray for me. The preacher said, I'll pray for you right now. So he began to pray. Lord, please send great tribulation into this brother's life. The man who asked for prayer put a hand out and touched the preacher on the arm, trying to stop his prayer. Don't let that one get to heaven. Something like that. (laughs) He said, you must not have heard me rightly. I didn't ask you to pray for tribulation. I asked you to pray that I might have patience. The preacher said, I heard what you said. But haven't you read Romans 5.3? This would be in the King James Version. And not only so, but we glory in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations worketh patience. It means we acquire patience through the things that we suffer. I prayed that God would send tribulations so that you would have patience. I actually don't think we should pray for God to increase tribulations on a person. But I do think we should be aware that if we're being given tribulations, it might be producing the very character in you that would keep you from tearing a church apart. God works patience in us. You know, there's a lot of busy beavers at Emmanuel. There's always a lot of busy beavers in the church. And that's good. We should use all the strength we have to serve. But there are sideline sufferers in the church too, you know. You don't see them as much because they're sick and suffering. But they have much to teach us. And we should listen to them and observe them if we would learn patience. Finally, making a commitment. I want you to make a commitment. The main thing needed to survive and thrive in a church long term is not that the church gets all its structures perfect. We'll keep trying. We've got to keep trying. They're not perfect now. There may be improvements we can make. We'll make them if we can. The main thing, though, is character. The people in those structures. 
Have they got the character it takes and the commitment it takes to keep unity? And Paul encourages us towards a commitment in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. He says we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice that word eagerly. I remember being struck about 18 or 19 years ago, the first time I studied this word, Dr. Ben Merkel offers several helpful translations of this word that really bring out the intensity I saw almost two decades ago, and I want you to see this morning. This word, be eager, means to be zealous, to take pains, to make every effort, or be conscientious. The unity of the church, flourishing in the power of the Spirit, is to be a vital concern of every single believer. We're to work hard for it, exert ourselves for it, put ourselves out for it, make plans to promote it, take action when we see it has been damaged. That's the commitment I'm asking you to make. By God's grace, it's the commitment I've tried to live by as long as I've been in Emmanuel. To try whenever possible to keep that unity, to guard the unity of the Spirit, to maintain, to be zealous for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, what are we working for? What are we working for? Eager to maintain what? The unity of the Spirit. What is the unity of the Spirit? Well, it's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Every single Christian has been moved by the Spirit to call out to God the Father. It's amazing. Every single Christian has been given the desires of the Spirit to trust in Christ and follow Christ. Galatians 5.17 This means we're united like soldiers in the trenches because we all experience the same warfare between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit. That's why you can meet a Christian you barely ever knew, and five minutes in you're talking, you're like, oh, I get it. I want to do the same things as you, and I have the same problems as you. Why? You got the same Spirit. We've all been given spiritual gifts to put Jesus on display. We've all been given, that's 1 Corinthians 12, 7, we've all been given power to witness for Jesus. We've all been given the Old Testament promise that we read in Jeremiah, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. That's the bond we share. Quit looking around this room and dividing people up by what school they go to, what color their skin is, whether they've been here a long time or a short time, whether they can tell you what high school they went to in Louisville or they never went to a high school in Louisville. Here's what we share in common, the Spirit. It's the Spirit. It's all we have in common. I would not hang out with you. And you would not want to hang out with me if it weren't not for the Spirit. That's our bond. That's our link. That's what we have in common. We have the Spirit of God residing in us. We have a common desire. We have a common heart. We have a common fight. We have a common Father because of Him. He is our unity. And you don't create it. You maintain it. You don't make the, how are you going to make the unity of the Spirit? You're not a genie. 
He's the sovereign Lord. He's either come to you or he hasn't. And if he has, then you've been brought in, you've been brought around a sacred fire that we want to guard and keep. How must it be maintained? The bond of peace. What's the bond of peace? Well, it's the bond, again, Ben Merkel, that consists of peace. It's not that complicated. Let me explain. You're enjoying sweet fellowship with a Christian or a small group of Christians, and then someone says something offensive or hurtful or insensitive, and no one says anything, but the offenses are taken and the peace is disrupted. And the unity of the Spirit is not enjoyed as much anymore. Do that five times and you can walk into this room and feel like you don't know anyone and no one knows you. That's how that works. Or someone does say something, something offensive happens, something does say something, they say something equally offensive. You snowflake, why do you have this problem? I mean, there's all kinds of ways to make a bad problem worse. And right there, the joy of the Holy Spirit in that people at that time is diminished. But we're called to maintain this unity. How do you do that? Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, sometimes you can't fix the situation, but usually you can. Live peaceably with all. Or the translation I memorized. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now let me ask you a question. Is there anyone at Emmanuel you're not at peace with? Anyone? Is there anyone at Emmanuel you're not at peace with? Is there anyone where warm fellowship has turned cool? The Bible commands us to take pains, to make every effort. This is the commitment I'm calling us to. This is the, this is the commitment Paul is calling us to. This is the commitment God is calling us to. We're called to make pains, be zealous, to be at peace with that person. The, the whole body is dependent on you doing this. The New Testament church, they were of one heart and one mind. They had one spirit. It was this, it was this just honeymoon of love. And the only reason it departs from a church is we stop trying to maintain it. Here's what we do. Instead of maintain the unity, we manage the disunity. Right? It was good with the two services. If you didn't like someone, there's options. There may be someone in the balcony today because there's someone on the main floor. They don't want to sit near. There's many good reasons to leave one GCG and go to another one. There's many bad reasons too. One is I don't want to have that hard conversation. I don't want to pursue that reconciliation. I'm going to manage the disunity instead of maintain the unity. And we were never told to be zealous to manage the disunity. We're, we're dealing with something beyond the human here, beloved. We're, we're dealing with a unity given by the Spirit. We're, we're dealing with something that can explode on the world like the book of Acts. We're dealing with a unity that when it's real, unbelievers are drawn in. The world watches. They go, what's going on there? That's not like anywhere else. Those people are not trying to get worthy. They've been given a worth from God. There's something new and different happening there. And so you can get into situations where you get... Frustrated. Here, here's what we all say 
when there's disunity. Every, everyone I ever talk to, they all say the same thing. Well, I would address it with that person, but they're not the kind of person that would listen. Amazing. I wonder what they feel like about you. But what's amazing is when we go in gentleness and humility, a surprising amount of people are willing to listen, are willing to be reconciled. Surprising breaches in unity can be restored. Churches that have split, I've seen them get back together. Believers who won't talk to one another, I've seen them love one another. We want to maintain the unity. So let me ask you this. We're not taking the Lord's Supper this Sunday. We're going to celebrate a baptism. So this is maybe a no-pressure environment to remind us what the Lord's Supper is meant to do. It's meant to keep those breaches of unity on a short leash. Each time we come to the Lord's table, we're supposed to ask ourselves, am I actually uniting with these people that are taking the same bread and the same cup as me? And the Bible says, you know, we say things like, unbelievers should beware of taking the Lord's Supper. Believe, beloved, that's not the emphasis of the New Testament. The emphasis of the New Testament is believers should beware of taking the Lord's Supper. Paul says, when they were disunited with one another and they took the Lord's Supper acting like they had all kinds of unity, some of them got sick and died so they wouldn't be condemned along with the world. God's like, I better take them out so they don't distance themselves from me and go to hell. It's amazing. So there's a week between now and the next time we take the Lord's Supper. Who needs a phone call? Who needs a coffee? My kids mocked me. Apparently this is dated to say, who needs an appointment? Who needs to be together? Who do you need to contact? Who do you need to be reconciled with? Who do you think it could never work with? Ask the Lord. He's able to do, oh, 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 oh. I'll close on this. Guess what comes right before my passage? You remember? He is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than all you ask or imagine. That's amazing. We read that passage and we go, oh, could there be a revival today? Paul reads that passage and goes, could anyone actually be humble in the church and get along with other people? Right before the passage I'm preaching on this morning, what's Paul saying? God is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than all you ask or imagine, including make you humble, make you gentle, Transform your relationships. Give you unity where there's division. Maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We praise you for giving us the unity of the Spirit. We pray we'd keep it in the bond of peace. Amen.